From DLA Piper, this is the Beyond the Curve podcast. In this episode, we will talk with two of our clients, Oxford Properties and the Greater Chicago Food Depository, about ways they're responding to the COVID-19 crisis. I'm John Sullivan, and I'm the chair of DLA Piper's U.S. real estate practice and co-chair of our global real estate practice. I'm delighted, really delighted to be joined by our client and more importantly, my good friend, Dean Shapiro. Dean's a senior vice president and head of U.S. development at Oxford Properties. And most people probably already know this, but I'll say it anyway for the record. Oxford Properties is the real estate investment arm of the Ontario Municipal Employees Retirement System, sometimes called OMERS. And it invests in commercial real estate around the world. Dean is a modest guy, so he probably won't say this. I will tell you that he has had an incredible career in commercial real estate. And to demonstrate that, all I really have to do is to tell you that as we're speaking, he's responsible for two of the largest and most transformative real estate developments in U.S. history. The $25 billion Hudson Yards development project in New York City and the redevelopment of the St. John's Terminal, which is a 1.3 million square foot adaptive reuse project in lower Manhattan. I've had the pleasure of working with Dean and a lot of his colleagues at Oxford on these and lots of other really fascinating real estate projects for many years. And I can't think of anybody better to talk to about commercial real estate in the context of the COVID-19 situation and also about the importance of giving back to the community than Dean. So, Dean, why don't we start with you telling us a little bit more about yourself and about Oxford Properties? Thanks, John. Well, you did a very good job in my intro, and I'm very grateful for that. I have been in commercial real estate the lion's share of my career. It's been 31 years. I started actually in a time in our business, which was not a great time. So this is probably my fourth cycle. I started in commercial real estate in 1989, which was right in the midst of, I would say, a deep recession in the wake of the stock market crash of 1987. And it's actually good to start at that time because you get to endure a good upswing, which we did pretty much until 1999. I have had a very interesting career. I spent the first 19 years at CBRE and two predecessor companies before that. And while I was largely at the same company, I had nine different jobs there. So everything from the transaction side to the M&A side to the corporate structuring side, and then ultimately to a job running the New York business, which is CBRE's largest business globally. My life and my career changed one day when I got a phone call from a developer in Connecticut that I had gotten to know while I was stationed there. And they said, we want you to come over. We want you to join us on the development side. We will make you a partner. And the rest is history. And I joined them at a very interesting time, 2008, which again was another major dip in our business and rode that up as well and was part of a very transformative development there. And then two and a half years later, got another life-changing phone call from Blake Hutchison, who was then the head of Oxford Properties and a mentor of mine at CBRE, who said, I just bought into the Hudson Yards development and they need you to come over and run it for us. And that started my career at Oxford. And I've worked on Hudson Yards for nine years. 
certainly a lot has happened during that time period. It went from an idea to a reality. And while we're only halfway done, we've already built what in many places would be considered a small city. And I would say that I went from freshman year of development straight to the PhD program. So I've learned a ton. And then I would say the next major milestone in my career was two and a half years ago when we decided to buy St. John's Terminal and transform that. And that has been probably the best thing I've ever worked on and really ties together the aggregation of all of my experiences to date. So been a great career and got a lot more to do. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned a long career, and then you said you started in 1989, which only makes me really feel old because I started <laughs> even before then. But it's so fascinating to hear, right? And sometimes you talk to particularly younger people, and they'll say, how did you plan your career? And the answer <laughs> usually is, well, there was no grand plan. It just sort of evolved. Dean, you guys are owners, investors, developers of major commercial real estate projects, uh, not only in New York City, but all around the U.S., all around the world. So I'm sure you've been impacted quite a bit by the COVID-19 pandemic. It'd be great if you could tell us a little bit about how the pandemic has impacted Oxford and its investments. Sure. I mean, I think everybody's been affected by COVID in some way. I think the beauty for us is we're part of a larger organization, OMERS, that is widely diversified in terms of business lines and geography, as is Oxford. So while Oxford is solely invested in real estate, it really runs the gamut geographically and in terms of business line. So as you might imagine, everything is affected differently. On one end of the spectrum, retail is the most affected because most of our retail is in shopping malls, which by mandate are shut down. And obviously when retailers are shut down, their revenue goes to zero other than a little bit of online that they might do. So that has been the most painful. On the other end of the spectrum, we have a wide portion of our portfolio that's invested in industrial. And that actually is very strong right now as the world is increasingly going towards e-commerce and ordering things online and particularly in the COVID world, it's particularly active. Office and residential are somewhere in the middle. They're affected, obviously, because companies and individuals are affected by this financially, but those business lines are affected less so than the retail side. So while we've taken a hit like everybody, I wouldn't say it's a direct body blow, but it has certainly given us things to think about for the future how to be more prepared and more resilient. And we are very focused on that at the current time. Right. I'm sure that being so well capitalized and diversified has got to be an advantage in what is obviously an incredibly difficult situation for everybody, every business, doesn't matter what business you're in, whether you own a sandwich shop or you're a global real estate investor, it's a tough time. But let me turn the focus a little bit and talk about culture. I know from working with you folks for years. Culture is very important within Oxford, as is giving back to the communities in which you invest and operate. It'd be great if you can tell us, Dean, a little bit about some of the things that Oxford's been doing to help support various communities in the midst of the COVID-19 situation. Sure. 
Yeah, I mean, culture is critical to us. And it's, I think, the reason most of us are really so pleased to be part of the Oxford organization and the Omer's organization, for that matter. That culture extends not only internally, but externally. And it's not just during COVID. There is a history of giving back to the community and interacting with the community that goes back to the beginning of Oxford. During COVID, as you might imagine, we have applied our efforts, first and foremost, I would say, to our own people to make sure everybody is safe and communicating the importance of our individuals to our organization. But just as we're doing that, we are using our resources and our ingenuity to help the COVID effort, particularly to first responders and people who are on the front lines and we're doing everything within our power to help. So the easiest thing to do is to write checks. We have made real financial contributions to the effort. One of them, as an example, is to an incredible organization led by one of our tenants at Hudson Yards, Jose Andres, who runs an organization called World Kitchen that basically brings food to disaster situations around the globe which has preceded COVID. But as part of COVID, we've served 40,000 meals to frontline workers. And separately, we have created a facility within Hudson Yards to act as a commissary for frontline workers who are working in a FEMA-developed auxiliary hospital at the Javits Center in New York. In addition to that, there are a bunch of things that we're doing around the world either to donate materials that we have from our idle office buildings and retail centers or devoting facilities that we have either to house frontline workers or to supply parking or storage, etc. Anything that is possible for us to do and we know is a need, we are doing globally. So that spans Canada, it spans Europe, mm -hmm. and it spans the United States. That's great to hear, Dean. It doesn't surprise me. Knowing Oxford for many, many years, I've seen how culture and community have always been very central, very front and center to your organization. On a personal note, it's one of the things that makes working with you and your colleagues so satisfying for myself and my DLA colleagues is you're working with people who are very focused, of course, on business and commercial success, but also focused very much on community and culture and how they conduct themselves and conduct their business. So thank you for all that you and your colleagues have done and are doing in that regard. I think it was Yogi Berra who said that it's hard to make predictions, especially when they're about the future. <laughs> and of course, it's especially hard to make predictions when you're in the middle of a situation like this global pandemic that none of us have ever seen before. But you know me well enough, Dean, to know that's not going to stop me from asking if you want to venture one or two guesses about ways in which COVID-19 might impact on a going forward basis how commercial real estate is owned, developed, used. Well, that is the big question now. <laughs> I think you need to break that down into phases. What I would say, you can't help but think about the major milestones and the major disasters that we've gone through in the last couple of decades. So for us in New York, you have to think about 9-11. Mm -hmm. 
And you have to think about Hurricane Sandy. Those are probably the two most notable sudden changes affecting real estate and occupancy and the city of New York. And in both of those, I would tell you the human spirit is enduring and you recover and you gravitate to a new normal. But you don't forget. And 9-11 certainly left an impression. And people think about safety. They think about the hardening of cores. They think about terrorism, etc. So it's part of the lexicon and it's part of the mindset in evaluating real estate. And similarly, Hurricane Sandy did the same. So there are new protocols in place and there are new criteria in place when corporations evaluate the safety and the reliability of facilities. So I believe the same dynamic will occur for the post-COVID-19 world. I believe human nature doesn't really change. I think situations have impacts. So I think in the short term, we obviously need to come up with a protocol that make people feel safe coming back into the workplace because people are scared. And there is a lot of good work being done now and what those protocols look like. And ultimately, we will get there. And that will probably entail things like wearing masks. It will require spacing. It will require probably a change in furniture configuration. It'll impact changes in congregation within the workplace. And that's short term. In the long term, I think that there will be developments in terms of things like air filtration, other wellness devices within the workplace, germ-free surfaces and technology around that, and other measures that are being talked about. It's going to take some time to do that, but I think there's going to be a lot of good thinking about it, and I think it's going to become part of workplace design. And there is a huge amount of conversation going on with users and with the architectural community and the engineering community to try to figure all of this out. So fascinating to think about where this might all lead. Dean, this has really been great. Thanks for spending some time with us, sharing your story, talking about Oxford, and in particular, talking about what you're doing to help your communities during the pandemic. You said a lot of interesting things during this conversation, but the thing that I'm going to take away is one of the things you said right at the end. You said the human spirit is enduring. And I think that's a very powerful statement, and that's the main thing I'm going to take away from our conversation. So thanks very much. I'm Mariah DeGrino, a partner with DLA Piper's Land Use, Development, and Government Relations Practice. I have the privilege of serving as pro bono general counsel for the Greater Chicago Food Depository. My guest today is Kate Mayer, Executive Director and CEO of the Greater Chicago Food Depository. Kate is also a member of the Board of Directors of Feeding America, the National Network of Food Banks, which includes the Food Depository as a member. Kate, thank you so much for joining me today. Mariah, thanks for having me. It is great to be with you today. I suspect most people in Chicago know of the Greater Chicago Food Depository, but I doubt that many know all of the things the Food Depository does to combat hunger. What is the Greater Chicago Food Depository? 
Well, the Greater Chicago Food Depository is the food bank that serves Cook County, Illinois, the county that Chicago is located in. And as you mentioned, we are part of this amazing network of 200 food banks that serve the entire United States. That network is known as the Feeding America Network. And in Chicago, what that means is every day we are getting food. For us, fresh produce is really job one. And so getting food from growers, manufacturers, wholesalers, and then distributing that food out to a network of, in our case, 700 community partners that serve every neighborhood in the city of Chicago and suburban Cook County. Organizations like food pantries, soup kitchens, homeless shelters that are really on the front lines of serving our neighbors. But in addition to that food distribution work, we do a lot of work around policy and advocacy, making sure that the federal nutrition safety net is strong. And there, in times like the ones that we're in, when people really need the support of programs like SNAP and WIC, and school breakfast programs. And then we also operate a workforce development program, Chicago's Community Kitchens, because we really come to this work with the belief that what people are looking for when they turn to us for food is a path out of food insecurity. And one of the best paths is a job that pays enough money that you don't have to go to a food pantry to get the groceries you need to get by. I want you to take us back to February and into March and those last few weeks of normalcy and then how quickly everything shifted. What was going on at the food depository during that time period? Well, I should say just to begin that it already feels like a lifetime ago. And I can recall conversations with supporters The data was telling us we had come out of a recession, and in so many ways, the city of Chicago was thriving. We were serving close to 800,000 people, neighbors, men, women, children, in every corner of our community, and that was in the best of times. What does a pandemic like this do to the landscape of need? Across the board, we are seeing right now about a 40% increase in the number of visits to food pantries. And I suspect that's going to go up because one of the things that we know is that there are a lot of people who were one or maybe two paychecks away from needing us. And because of the requirements about sheltering in place, many people are going to lose three, four, five, ten paychecks. And it will take them a long time to build back to a place where they're financially secure and where they have enough food coming into the house to be food secure. That's an amazing, sobering increase in the need. How has the network and the food depository handled the response to that need while also dealing with the impacts of COVID that are affecting every single organization, every household, every individual in the state of Illinois and nationally and globally? Well, I'll start by saying that I've been in food banking for more than 20 years. And this is, without a doubt, the biggest challenge I've ever faced. And I think for any of us who do this work, we've never experienced anything like this. And 
part of the challenge is thinking about how we respond, but how do we also keep our volunteers and our teams safe, even when the community needs us more than ever. And so from the early days, we were fortunate that we have a really strong partnership with the mayor of Chicago and the city of Chicago, as well as our governor in the state of Illinois. And so we were getting regular briefings and a regular flow of information about the crisis that was unfolding in the early days of March. That really allowed us to make sure that we were paying attention and adhering to all of the guidelines being put forth by the CDC. And so even before we were calling a crisis in Chicago, we were taking steps. We deep cleaned our facility. We were getting PPE for our team, making sure that all of our employees who were able to work remotely were equipped to do so, so that when Chicago made the decision to shelter in place, we were ready to go in terms of our team. And also, we had been in regular contact with our network of partners. And I think, for me, one of the really important stories in Chicago is how resilient that network is. And so here we are seven weeks into the crisis, 70% of our partner agencies, food pantries and soup kitchens on the front lines, 70% of them are open and operating normal. What else has the response looked like from an operational standpoint? So two other really important points, even though we have this amazing network, we also know that there are vulnerable or underserved communities or populations that, for whatever reason, may not be accessing the traditional pantry network. Some of those might be geographic gaps, communities where there's high need, but for some reason there isn't a pantry, and in which case we are literally building community-by-community strategies where we are looking at all of the partners, all of the potential assets, and we are mounting mobile responses in partnership with organizations in those communities and working really closely with the city of Chicago on that. Another really critical strategy is the federal nutrition safety net, which I mentioned earlier. At the end of the day, we are going to receive and distribute a lot of food through this food bank and through the Feeding America network of food banks. But the food that we distribute will pale in comparison to the benefit provided through the SNAP program. So SNAP, for people who are listening who aren't familiar, is the formal name of the food stamp program. It is the most powerful anti-hunger tool that we have. And what I think is really important at this moment is that SNAP is not only the most powerful way to help people get connected to food, it's also an incredibly powerful economic stimulus tool. People get SNAP benefits loaded on an electronic benefit transfer card, EBT card, every month. Those benefits get spent in grocery stores in a community. Those grocery stores, in turn, can hire people, can pay manufacturers. It goes all the way. The dollars that get spent on SNAP go all the way back to the farmer who grows that food. So it's a really powerful economic stimulus tool. We're all, in the meantime, hearing about 
meat processing plants being shut down, labor shortages in the farm industry, crops being sewn under. How does this impact the food depository? Yeah, I think that there are a couple of really important things to pay attention to right now and some lessons for us to learn about the fragility of our food system. We see the fragility, particularly right now in meat processing. I think it just reminds us that we are one connected food system, interdependent. And when one part of our food system is not strong, there's risk for all of us. In addition to the concerns that have been raised through people testing positive in food processing plants, I would also raise another concern, which is that for much of the supply chain that is focused on fresh food, fruits and vegetables that are picked, those crops are often picked by individuals who are immigrants. And so that is another risk right now. When we make decisions about immigration policy, it ultimately impacts our supply chain. What we see right now is that truckloads of food that ordinarily we would have ordered and then been able to receive within two weeks. We're now being told six weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks to receive that food. And I think there's still some upheaval to come. And it is a reminder that we are all connected to this food system. And we need to understand some of the points of fragility within the system. So coming out of this, do you think that one of the lessons from this is going to be a need for national coordination. And how do you see that national coordination being implemented? I do certainly see a need for more national coordination. I do think one of the things that is a lesson coming out of this that we need to pay close attention to is the disproportionate impact that the virus is taking on communities of color and in particular, low-income communities of color. And it is a reminder that the most vulnerable people in our neighborhoods and in our cities and in our country are the people who have been most vulnerable all along. And I think we have to have a conversation around equity, around income, and ultimately, how do we create a different community, a different system where everyone can thrive? we're all going back to the office at some point and the kids are going back to school and it will seem like the crisis is over when that happens, but it's not. We talked earlier about the recession and we're talking about a recession that started in 2008 and we're still talking about the residual impacts of that. Do you see the same impact here with the pandemic Somebody asked me the other day, what's keeping me up at night? And I think they assumed that I was going to tell them something about the daily disaster we're in right now, something about our trucks, our drivers, our volunteers, the supply chain. But in fact, that is not what's keeping me up right now. What I'm worried about is what's to come. And in particular, I am worried about what happens if it begins to feel like we have returned to some level of normalcy, that 
people can return to their jobs in the loop, to their office buildings, that kids are back in school, that it feels like our economy is returning to where we were pre-COVID. But the data would suggest that even when people return to their jobs, that we're going to have this new high level of need. And my worry is that we are going to forget. We're going to forget the men and women who are still struggling. That we're going to forget what it felt like to be isolated and alone and worried. That we're going to move back into our daily lives and we're not going to remember that the neighbor down the street the family that have children in your children's classroom, that they are still carrying the burden of economic turmoil in their household. We have to remember this is going to be a long response and we need to be there for our neighbors, not just today, but we need to be there in the months and years to come. Well, DLA has been there for many years. And we've been a longtime supporter of the Greater Chicago Food Depository before we were even DLA. And I know that we will be there with you in those years to come. DLA lawyers and staff around the country and the world support many causes and many organizations. But we seem to rally in particular around combating hunger. But whether it's our work with food banks nationally, with Feeding America, or with global food banking, Much of that takes root in our relationship with the Food Depository here in Chicago. And you've said in the past that it makes you brave (laughs) and it gives you the freedom to do things that you might not otherwise be brave enough to do. And so I want to thank you for letting us be a part of your organization, letting us participate with you in the response to the pandemic, to food insecurity, to the need before and after the pandemic, and for helping you be brave. And I really want to thank you for joining us today and for sharing this insight. Well, Mariah, I want to thank you and all of your colleagues worldwide at DLA. You have helped us to be brave. And I would say today, you're giving us courage. And that's what we need to rise up and respond I am so grateful to everyone at DLA for being in our corner always. In the end, what it means is we are able to have impact and make sure that all of our neighbors have the food that they need to eat. We're so grateful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to DLA Piper's Beyond the Curve podcast. This podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship between the firm and listener. All information, content, and materials discussed are for general informational purposes only. No listener should act or refrain from acting with respect to any particular legal matter on the basis of this information without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Views expressed by guests are their own.